All right, welcome back to the big program. Just after 9 o'clock in Edmonton, another great weekend of weather coming up. Uh, Going to be plus 1, plus 2 tomorrow and Sunday. Time now for On the Mark, powered by Booster Juice. Visit a location today to refuel, refresh, or re-energize, or even download the new Booster Juice Rewards app to earn, order, and enjoy. Mark Spector wrapping up his 9 o'clock appearance, but 8 o'clock PT time for the week. Morning, Spec. <laughs> Hey, nice shirt, UCLA. Did you like swim there or something, Kev? <laughs> yeah, I, I swam there. <laughs> Sink like a rock in the pool or the lake. I wore it just for you though, Spec, because I knew you were going to be in like SoCal the whole bit, yeah. right? Maybe you're. I thought you might have been like captain of the square dancing team or something well, like that. I, I went to a game. I saw UCLA play. I went to well, I went to two games. Went to the Rose Bowl and went to the Coliseum uh, on a little, quick little trip. Uh, the great Laura Baker took me down there for my 50th birthday seven years ago. Well, is that right? Yeah. We saw, well, we saw two great games. Well, the tailgating was, was the best down there. And um, wanted to see, we were kind of, we stayed kind of right around where Ed Hervey's old stomping grounds at USC. And Ed kind of gave me a couple of tips about where to, what to do, what to, you know, the whole bit. So it was lots of fun down there. Good. Well, you, you should just... Well, I what's thought the, you were going to see you stayed around Ed Hervey's old stomping grounds. Not in Compton, Compton no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, Ed Hervey has seen things that people would not believe. And that's and, and I'm being honest here. And you know the stories too. So uh, toughest yes. part of, toughest part, probably one of the top two, three, four toughest parts of the uh, USA, Compton, I would say. Yeah, it's a tough area for sure. I know another guy, Hispanic fella, sports writer who grew up in uh, Compton as mm-hmm. well, and uh, he told some tales to me one night over some the kind of things a kid growing up there sees. And, uh, you know, it's a little different than growing up in Laurier Heights, Kev. i got to <laughs> tell you that. <laughs> well, yeah, just uh, talking about that, I was down at the rink the other day, and uh, Patty there, right, Patty? Yeah. Uh, he was... Well, they shut. They had to shut it down because of the weather for a couple of days. But he was. They got a. He's got a little zamboni going now. Spec. Really? Yeah. He's just. It's Jeez. a. It's a. It's a homemade kind of thing on a. Not a. Not a quad, but a little bit bigger than a quad, and he just zips it around. He's got a tank. He fills it up, and you know it looks good. Perfect ice oh, this year. Nice. Whatever happened in the days of the rink rat going out at three in the morning and. Uh, Flooding with a normal hose. <laughs> yeah, hey, whatever will happen to those days. Garden hose, yeah. Yeah, garden hose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how's the trip going? I mean, you still got two games to cover, but uh, I guess first let's uh, let's touch on the lines that were kind of tinkered and the the defense pairings just uh, before we get to the, your article on Jack Campbell. But uh, what are your thoughts on the tinkering? We touched on it off the top, but your thoughts, Beck? Yeah, I, I think uh, I give Knobloch credit. You know, one thing about defense pairs is, I mean, you got your six guys, and the orders have been unbelievably healthy. I'm knocking wood mm-hmm. all season long. And those six guys, they've just they've kept the same three pairs, you know, pretty much the whole season. But you know this, the minute one guy gets hurt, so now you pull, let's, you know, you'll often pull a guy off another pair, so that's two fresh new pairs. And you might one injury might leave you with one pair that stays mm-hmm. the same and the other two change. So here's my point: you got to get guys playing with each other, so that when the injury comes, there the guy across the blue line from him isn't a total stranger. Yeah. You know, Kulak can't play with DeHarnay the entire season every single game. He needs to move things around. Uh, same with with uh, Ekholm and and Bouchard. 
So I, I admire, I think it's a sort of courageous forward thinking play by the head coach here to say, look, we're just going to mix things up. We're going to take a fresh look at a few things and, and, and stir the pot. It gets a little dull after 55 <laughs> games playing with the same guy. I like what he's doing. One of the most important words in any coach's vocabulary is options. And this is a, a perfect example where you can see the possibilities moving forward. So, and in the case of any day, Harney, he's, he's deserved it to have a, a look to play with Darnell nurse. He's deserved this opportunity. The one thing that I did say this morning now spec that for the bulk of his career, he, you know, he's been seeing except on the penalty kill, he's been seeing the third and fourth lines, right? So now playing with Darnell nurse, he'll be seeing top, top players a lot more than what he has been. So that's going to be a good indicator to see what he does there. Your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, you got to remember that when you play on the road, the whole plan of the other team is to get their best line out against your third pairing. So, yes, playing with Nurse, that means now now the Knobloch will deploy, right? Knobloch will deploy his Nurse pairing against the other team's best guy. But it's not like DRNA hasn't been on the ice mm-hmm. against the other team's first line. That's kind of the plan of the opposition all year. So, He's, I can't see why he can't have it. Is he a 24-minute defenseman all of a sudden? I'm not sure because mm-hmm. that's what Nurse is. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see how he handles it. You know, we'll see how it goes. But I, I think it's, I think it's a lot of, it's a good idea. It doesn't have to last a, a month, let alone the whole game. And you know, I also want to add this: the coaches pour over the video, and they always see things that we don't watching games live or on TV. Yeah. And, you know, for instance, it was very evident from the press box, Bouchard didn't have a very good game in Vegas. He just, it was, when Bouchard gets a little inattentive and a little laissez-faire, you can see it from 100 miles away. That's just the way it is. He's been great. He wasn't great in Vegas. Maybe, maybe they've seen that coming. And maybe they say, you know what, we need to switch things up. A guy needs a little bit. Bouchard, uh, Darnay deserves to go up. Maybe Bouchard deserves a little couple minutes shaved off his time. And this is a coach coaching, man. That's what they pay him to do. Mm -hmm. Mark Spector with us on Sports 1440. All right, let's get to your article on Jack Campbell that you did yesterday in the afternoon. You can check it out on sportsnet.ca. Just your initial, I guess, response to when you sat down with with Jack and how you thought his, you know, his mannerism and his, you know, how happy he was, his, uh, you know, what he was portraying, uh, you know, everything, what you thought when you just sat down with him. Well, I can tell you this. I've done a few of these stories where NHL guys are buried in the minors and can't get out. You know, I remember going to Hershey to see Sheldon Surrey. Um, you know, that's just one of them. And usually what happens is they say the right things, but there's always a, a little innuendo like, oh, man, like, yeah. what am I doing here? Right. I'm an NHL player or, you know, how long are they going to hang me down here for? And and even if they don't say it, you certainly can sense it when you're in the conversation. So yesterday, we spoke, I spoke to Jack Campbell. And first of all, he's absolutely in a great mood and happy and up, upbeat, not depressed in any way about the fact that it doesn't look like he's coming up, right? No. Kevin, it, no. Ken Hall is not making any moves here with his goalies. So I think everybody knows that Campbell's down there for the long haul. Uh, we all know the issue with Jack Campbell. It's never been, you know, his feet, slow feet or a bad glove hand. 
it's always been his mental approach. And he claims in the story that I wrote and in the conversation we had, he says, it's clicked. I think I think I figured everything out. So he says he's ready mentally. Is he? He's the only guy that knows. I don't know. But I was very impressed with a guy that wasn't pouty, wasn't sulking, didn't feel sorry for himself, and has really gone to work on not just you – know, we always talk about players, Kev, who only work on the parts of their game they're good at. Everybody, including Jack Campbell, knows the part of the game he has to work at. He's got a, a life coach. He's – uh, getting married this summer. His yeah. apparently his fiance has been very helpful. He knows exactly what he's got to work on. And as he said, not me, he said it's the six inches between my ears, and he's gone hard to work on it. So you got to give a guy credit for that, don't you? You have to. There's no question about it. And he, you know, he's always been team first guy, always. And did he mention a lot? And you did touched on it here a lot about the support uh, that he's had. You know, fiance, team, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Like he said, he's had a, a life coach, he called him, since last April. Yeah. Um, so basically the end of last season for him. Um, and again, he said, my, you know, his fiance, Ashley, has, he says she's been with me through the good times in Toronto, through the would have been bad times so far in Edmonton. And she's the one that I, I sense, this is mm-hmm. me kind of reading the tea leaves, She's the one that catches him sulking a little bit or feeling sorry for himself and gives him a kick in the ass and says, let's go. You're getting, this isn't getting you anywhere. So, you know, we all need support, right? We all need someone to tell us when maybe we're feeling sorry for ourselves a little bit and to, you know, knuckle down and get after it. There's, Uh, and apparently that's what he's got. So, you know what? Hey, I'm an objective reporter, Mm -hmm. but I'm also a human being. And when you see that guy with that attitude in that position, you can cheer for him. You know, what a great story it would be for Jack Campbell to make his way back and and help the orders in some way, shape, or form, huh? You know, we're going to see him at some point this year, like at the end of the year even. You know, I let's just talk about tonight. Cal Pickard's going to get the start. So yeah. let's see, you, you know, let's see what happens tonight. I'm sure Cal's going to come up with a great performance because he's he's been very good. Yeah, you know, Ken Holland said to me in the story, he says, don't forget, uh, Olivier Rodrigue is also playing great in the minors. So he says, we got four goalies all playing well on our organization. This is a good problem, right? Yeah. You know, they got four guys that are all in their spots playing well. Uh, you can't wave Calvin Pickard. No. You just can't. You can't make a move with Jack Campbell because you can't send Pickard down. Uh, go- lesser goalies have been lost on waivers this year already. So Holland's got a good situ as as good a situation as he can have in goal without having to go and spend an asset to get somebody new, a fifth guy. So he's going to go with basically Kev backup by committee here. Mm-hmm. He's going to go with Skinner and Pickard all the way through, and then much like 06 when you had Rollison starting, and then you had Conklin and UC Markin in behind them. Yeah, I suspect that's what we'll see in the playoffs. Is uh, you know, as, as, until Bakersfield's, uh, and I mean, if they're playing, I guess Campbell probably has to stay there. I will mm-hmm. see. But the point is, the backup will be by committee. And I listen, if they're all playing well. I can live with it. Like two and a half, three months ago, the goaltending situation was like Chernobyl, wasn't it? So, I mean, oh my God. And look where it is now. Um, so, this is the patience, right? Yeah. Everyone freaks out, including Panic. us. Talking heads on sports radio. Yeah. Oh my God, Ken Holland's got to do something right now. What did Ken Holland do with his goaltending? He mm-hmm. just chilled, right? He just chilled. He brought up Pickard, 
let him play a little bit. Eh, you know what? The guy's not as bad as we thought. He's pretty good. Mm-hmm. He sent Campbell down. Campbell was a disaster. He said, just let him play, yeah. right? Let's chill on this guy. Now Campbell's playing. He's got a 935 in his last seven games. So maybe the best move was no move, huh? Well, it's worked out just great. It's worked out phenomenal. So, Speck, you got uh, Anaheim tonight, then you go to L.A., and when are you back? Do you get to watch? Are you, you're not flying during the Super Bowl or something crazy, are you? No, no, I'm flying really, really early Sunday so oh, I can get home and watch the Super Bowl. So Perfect. I look forward to that uh, on a Sunday afternoon in Edmonton. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they got the Ducks. We're assuming it's Pickard tonight. I think mm-hmm. it should be. I don't know if anyone – I wasn't with the orders yesterday. But yeah, I think I think uh, uh, Chris Knobloch announced that yesterday that it he would be Pickard okay. tonight and there. Skinner tomorrow. So well, well, Why not? I mm-hmm. mean, he hasn't played for a long time too, remember? Yes. Um, and then you walk in L.A. with a fresh goalie and Skinner and, uh, you know, a place they won last time. And the, the Kings are getting the new coach bump. This is the Kings' first game back on Saturday mm-hmm. from the All-Star break. Yes. And they got a new coach here. So let's see how that goes. Jimmy Seawop, actually. No, that's what I call him. I, I played one year of junior with Jim Hiller. Spec. Oh, you did now? Yes. So go back a long really? way with old Jimmy. That was my nickname for him, Seawop. Why do you call him that? It's a story for another time, Spec. <laughs> <laughs> you and I tell it to you, you're going to go, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good weekend, big guy. We'll talk to you on Tuesday, maybe even see you on Monday. Have a good one, Spec. Yeah, we'll be back to 8 a.m.s next week. You betcha, baby. Uh, yes, Mark Spector back at 8 a.m.s next week, just uh, to let everyone know. Marty Stevens down the hall, Specs back at 8 next week. Uh, that was On the Mark, energized by Booster Juice. Get the boost you need at booster juice when we come back brian conacher former gm of the edmonton oilers in the wha days and stanley cup champion from the 67 leafs will be our guest on the kevin carey show on sports 1440 stay with us all right welcome back to the big program looking forward to chatting with our next guest as we welcome in former nhler brian conacher to the show good morning brian and welcome to sports 1440 thanks for coming on today good morning kevin well, you know, I called called you yesterday and said you got time to come on, and you said, "Yeah, let's give her, let's let's get her done." Uh, so, uh, you know, Brian, when I was kind of talking to Greg Pilling about you and and having the possibility, he was well, this is a perfect tie-in with the All Star Game because you and a number of your teammates from the 1967 Stanley Cup champion Toronto Maple Leafs were recognized at the All Star Game with the Keith Magnuson Award. What was that experience like for you? Well, it was a terrific experience uh, for for the seven of us remaining from the 67 Stanley Cup team. Uh, Frank Mahovlich, Bobby Pulford, Dave Keon, myself, uh, Ronnie Ellis, Peter Stemkowski, and Mike Walton. And uh, as I said somewhat facetiously, if this keeps up, I could be in the starting lineup. <laughs> but the um, the... It was a great honor in, in the sense that the NHL Alumni Association, of which I was the, uh, the, the president for two or three years, several years ago, um, you know, represents all the former NHL uh, players. And, um, and they have their annual dinner every year. It just happened to coincide this year with the All-Star game being in Toronto. And as a result, the NHL coordinated it with them on the first evening. So it was a great honor. It was uh, nice to see the the other players. We had some good visits. And uh, Ronnie Ellis uh, wasn't feeling well, so he did not attend. And Frank Mahovich had just had a knee operation on the on the Wednesday, the day before, so he wasn't mobile. 
but uh, the five of us had a, had a good time, and it was uh, it was quite an honor to be uh, to be recognized. And the other part of that coin is, though, after 56 years, there should have been a team they've been recognizing that was maybe 10 years had won the Stanley Cup or 25 years, but 56 years is a long time. It sure is, as Brian Conacher is our guest on Sports 1440. Does that always get brought up with you, Brian, and when you're doing all these events, the fact that you know the Leafs haven't won since you were a part of it in 67? Yeah, no, I think uh, I, I think it does get brought up a lot, and um, as I've said again, somewhat facetiously, my career gets better with each year. Um, it just it just seems to um, gnaw on the people, and it is hard to believe, really, for any sports franchise. I don't know whether it's a record by any stretch; it might not be, but it's certainly, I think, in the NHL, it is. I think the New York Rangers went some like, like 50 years without winning a Stanley Cup, and I think Mark Messier was a big part of breaking that cycle and uh, but the bottom line is um, the Leafs have had lots of good players over the years I think uh, in reality enough to win several Stanley Cups but for one reason or the other um, it just hasn't happened Mm -hmm. and winning the Stanley Cup today is not an easy thing it's um, a lot more difficult than it was in our day uh, I was had the good fortune of playing in the literally the last game in the original six when we beat Montreal uh, for the Stanley Cup in '67. Uh, but the the league has changed, the game has changed, the uh, the four playoff series are are truly another potentially another season of a maximum of 28 games, and it's quite a different scenario physically and mentally in the playoffs over what it is in the regular season. Hmm. Brian Conacher with us on Sports 1440. We got so many topics to cover with you, Brian, because you're so diverse in the game of hockey. I, I, I guess I'm going to start before you won the Stanley Cup and your experience with the 1964 Olympic team. What was that like for you? Well, that, that again was a unique experience. Um, my father, uh, Lionel Conacher, was Canada's athlete of the mm-hmm. first half century. And he had done just about everything in sport. But I remember my mother saying, and my father died in 1954 uh, when I was only 12 years old. But when I had the opportunity in summer 1963, I was invited by Father Bauer to join this this team that they were going to put together for the 64 Olympics. And um, my mother said, well, your father did almost everything there was, virtually everything there was in sports except go to the Olympics. And I had uh, an opportunity to do that, and I just thought I didn't want to look back in 20 or 30 years and say I wished I had of. Um, so I got involved with the program right at its foundation, and uh, we went in 64 in Innsbruck, Austria. And we got gypped out of a medal, um, as, as simple as that. The Soviets, uh, uh, I think, deservedly, they beat us in the final game, 3-1, to one, I think, the score, and they deserved to win the gold medal. But there were three teams, ourselves, um, I think Sweden and Czechoslovakia, were all tied with five and two records. You played, there was eight teams in the, uh, in the gold medal round, and uh, there, there were three of us that were tied with five and two records. And during the third period of that game, the International Ice Hockey Federation with Bunny O'Hearn, IOC with Avery Brundage, changed... Oh, we might have lost Brian, Duke. Do we still have him? We'll try to get Brian back on the line. He just... I think we just might have lost him for a second. So, uh, amazing career, Brian Conacher. Before 
he got to the NHL. He was at the, uh, as he mentioned, with uh, Father David Bauer at the 1964 uh, Winter Olympics. It was in Innsbruck, Austria, as, as he was saying. And just the fact that, um, the, the, as he said, they were both 5-2 and two records, uh, several teams at 5-2 and two records, and the IOC, who knows what was going on. But, uh, Brian, can you hear me now, Brian? Have we got you back? I can hear you now. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. So just kind of uh, get back to where you were with all the teams with five and two records in, uh, at Innsbruck and continue on, please. Well, so we we ended with five and two records, and uh, I might be repeating myself, but uh, I'm not sure where it cut yeah. off. But um, in the third period of that final game, um, Bunny Ahern, who was the head of the mm-hmm. I, uh, International Ice Hockey Federation, and Avery Brundage, who was the head of the Olympic uh, organization, um, they changed the rules and they decided they were going to break the tie for the gold or the silver medal um, by goals for and against. Well, when you go into a tournament, I mean, there was a couple of games. There was one game we won eight nothing. I mean, we could have won it ten nothing, and that would have made the difference. Yeah. Like it just that wasn't the game. That wasn't what the rules were. The rules were you had to win or lose. Yeah. And um, so we went to the medal ceremony on the ice, expecting to get a silver or bronze medal. And we got to thank you very much for coming. That's so we ended up in fourth place by goals for and against. So the experience was somewhat soiled and remains so, I guess, to this day. But uh, the actual participation in the Olympics and the development. And if I had not played for Father Bauer on that team, I don't think I ever would have made the NHL. Hmm. Brian Connor, amazing story, Brian, of your uh, experience at the uh, Winter Olympics in 64. So after the Stanley Cup and uh, then you do some a little bit of coaching in the minors, you end up going into to management in the WHA in Indianapolis, and then you come to Edmonton. So how did that all come about for you? Well, I have to take a quick uh, note. Hopefully you have the time. But yeah? but uh, when you said I coached in the minors, I coached in the minors against Greg Pilling, <laughs> our, our mutual okay, friend. Yeah, okay. And Greg coached in Philadelphia, and he was one of the most creative coaches I've ever uh, I've ever seen. So his one of his favorite tricks, and he did it on my team several times, is that they would get a penalty or late in the game. Um, what they'd do is if they were down a goal, he would pull his goalie, <laughs> but he would put two players on. So the referees are sitting there, and, and quite often they scored. And so while the referee is trying to count um, whether there's too many men on the ice, they quite often scored. And the second they scored, the whole team went on the ice. So it was impossible to count. And I always uh, I remember that to this day. I always thought he was one of the most innovative coaches, and he was a good coach. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've kept in touch over the years. Yeah. Phil's a great guy, and, and he facilitated this, yeah. So uh, after your coaching, and then you get into the, I guess, management end of the things with the WHA in Indianapolis and then Edmonton. So just kind of uh, take us through that process and, and well, that time. I was involved with the, uh, the Oilers, I think it was in 77 or 78. It was the year before Gretzky. My timing's always been perfect in hockey. Yeah. <laughs> um, Anyways, I came to Edmonton when the Indianapolis Racers didn't look like they were going to operate that year, and I had been their general manager for that season, and they were in financial trouble. And I, I was at a point in my life I wanted, I was in my mid-30s, I wanted to, had an opportunity to come back to Canada. I was hired by Nelson Scalabania, and Glenn Sather was hired by Peter Pockington. Mm-hmm. And um, 
in the course of the the chaos that existed in the WHA, um, Peter Pockington ended up being the main guy in Edmonton, and Glenn was affiliated with him. And my my relationship was primarily through Nelson, as the general manager. And that part of it, uh, the rest of that is is, is history. But um, I um, I enjoyed uh, my brief stay with the Edmonton Oilers. The the interesting thing about the WHA in hindsight is that the whole league defied financial gravity, like it never, it, like it didn't make any sense. Yeah. I think the, the 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 modus operandi for the league was to promise the players anything, and if we survive, we'll pay them, and if we don't survive, well, you know that's that. Mm-hmm. And of course, there was a lot of casualties along the way, and a lot of teams that um, that fell by the wayside. But it changed hockey. The the the, the the creation of the World Hockey Association was a little bit like the American Football League that tried to force its way into the National Football League and, and, and ultimately successfully did so. And the WHA was some, to some degree like that. The four teams that got in, um, you know, basically forced their way in because th- the one thing about the WHA was it changed a, a lot of the style of hockey when it brought in the Europeans. And, they, and the WHA was the first to bring in Europeans and, um, and they were good. And they created a lot of that circling and a lot of that uh, cycling and a lot of the, uh, the motion, a lot more motion than there was in the, in the North American game, which was really a north-south game and very rugged. And, uh, but it became um, a different style of hockey, and it's evolved to what it is today. But the, the WHA, at the end of the WHA, there was certainly two or three teams in the WHA that were every bit as good as the NHL. So when they fitted together, certainly the Edmonton Oilers are a prime example, and the Winnipeg Jets are as well. Brian Conacher, our guest on Sports 1440, uh, he had so many characters. Glenn Sather was the coach on that team in uh, 78 or 77, 78. I was texting Al Hamilton yesterday, uh, Brian, just to kind of talk about things and, and, and uh, moving forward. But, you know, Al Hamilton, Bill Cowboy Flett was on the team and uh, Dave Semenko was a young player. Just uh, your thoughts and what do you remember? Just uh, kind of the infancy stages. And as you said, Wayne Gretzky came the next year. Yeah, well, uh, an interesting player in that team was Dave Semenko. Um, Dave Semenko was a pretty good hockey player, a better hockey player than I think a lot of people gave credit for. Um, But, you know, he was um, Wayne Gretzky's guardian angel. And, um, you know, you didn't fool around with Wayne. And and Wayne was capable of taking care of himself. He'd come up through a major junior. So, you know, he knew what the game was about. But uh, Semenko... It, I remember a story. They had um, a boxing promoter in Edmonton in the summer, one of the summers, a couple mm-hmm. of summers after um, they got they got into the NHL or whatever. And they in the summertime, Muhammad Ali had retired, yeah. and they had an exhibition boxing match, three or four round boxing match with Dave Semenko and Muhammad Ali yeah. <laughs> in uh, in Edmonton. And you were probably doing the broadcasting at that time as well, and. No. You know, Dave Semenko was, I mean, he could have been the great white hope because he was, he was um, quite, a, quite a physique and, and very skilled. So when you fought against Dave Semenko, he knew what they were doing or what he was doing. And, uh, and he, was, um, he, he truly uh, was a valuable part of that team. 
Brian Conacher with us on Sports 1440, Stanley Cup champion with the Toronto Maple Leafs in 1967, GM of the Edmonton Oilers. Did you know, Brian, there was uh, only 10 technically GMs in, in Edmonton Oilers history and you're one of them? Like going back to, to Bill Hunter in 71? Yeah, well, I, I knew there there haven't been a lot over mm-hmm. the years. I think that when um, when Glenn got in to, uh, to take over, um, in the, in the year, like I was there for one year, and then Glenn came in, and of course uh, there was a lot of stability there. They had a great team; things were all stable, so there was no need to change. Uh, nowadays, um, you can't seem to fire the players, so <laughs> it's always management that gets um, the hevo. Yeah, uh, one area that I really wanted to talk about, Brian, was in 1972, uh, and maybe not a lot of people uh, know that, but you were the color commentator for the Summit Series in 1972 with Foster Hewitt. So uh, that just had to be one of the highlights and one of the most amazing uh, uh, experiences that of your hockey uh, career, even on the ice or away from it. Well, uh, that again is another uh, unusual uh, story, is that um, I had played for Canada Reunited a National Team briefly in 1969, and they were supposed to host the World um, Championships in Winnipeg. And the, the rule had been adjusted that five former professionals could play, and I was one of those, Billy Harris, uh, Barry McKenzie, uh, and a couple of other players from the Montreal organization. And so we played uh, in the fall, and we went to the Izvestia tournament in Moscow in December of that year. And we, um, we came in second place, and we had a good showing. And so going down the road a little bit, um, the, the, the Russians uh, went to the IOC and said, you know, they wouldn't play hockey against if there was any f- professionals on their team, et cetera, et cetera. That's a whole different story. But the bottom line is Canada was out of international hockey. So the Canada didn't come back in until 70, the fall of 72, when Eagleson was able to negotiate with the Russians. I had played international hockey. I had uh, played against the foundation of that Team Canada 72 Soviet team. Mm -hmm. And I was also in broadcasting at CKLW in Windsor uh, doing TV sports. So what I had sort of the thing, the NHL did not want, or or the uh, the, the NHL, who was dead against the series, in in essence, didn't want anybody from Hockey Night in Canada uh, on the series. So Johnny Esau from CTV, who got the rights, he went after Foster Hewitt, who had been long retired, but was still probably the most recognizable uh, broadcasting voice in hockey. And I was chosen by them to be the color because I'd had the experience uh, of playing against a lot of these teams and had played against uh, the Europeans. So that's ultimately how I got I got the job. Uh, but the problem with the job is the NHL didn't really want me doing the color because I had written a book in 1970 that was somewhat critical of the NHL's operations. And um, but Alan Eagleson um, and and a few other people, you know, stuck to their guns. And anyways, I went and did the series with Foster, the four games in Canada, and the four games in Moscow. And it was a unique experience. Yeah. The interesting thing about that that series is that. That Team Canada uh, was a good team, and it didn't become a team until very late in the series where it really melded together. Not unlike our 67 Stanley Cup team, mm-hmm. who had a very troubled regular season, but all of a sudden came together in the playoffs. 
Um, but it was, uh, you know, uh, Bobby Hull wasn't on the team and potentially a Dave Key on the, uh, there was players there that you could have thought. And Bobby, Bobby Orr, unfortunately, was hurt and not able to play. So while the series was close, it, it might not have been as close um, if some of those other players had been available. Could you feel, Brian, that just the the temperature rising from the start, where everyone thought Canada was it was going to be a cakewalk for Canada, and then you know getting to Russia and and you know just communism, you know free world, the whole bit. Yeah. There were so many storylines there. You, I'm sure you could feel it just from day one. Yeah. Well, it was interesting because the, the series started in one place. Uh, where Canada was, you know, the, the Soviets would be lucky if they won a game. Mm-hmm. And it was heresy for anybody. Billy Harris, who had coached uh, the Swedish national team the year before in the Olympics, he knew how good the Soviets were. And Billy and I had played briefly together on uh, Canada's national team in 69. And we had played against the foundation of this of that team. So we knew how good they were. But it was heresy to say everybody thought the NHL would just wipe them off. You know, that at best... The Soviets might be a decent American Hockey League team, but they, they certainly weren't up to playing against the NHL. And, of course, on that night in uh, Montreal, on that first game, uh, hockey that night changed forever yeah. when the Soviets came into Montreal, into the Forum, and beat the, uh, the, the, the Canadian team. I can't remember. I think it was 7-2. I'm not sure what mm-hmm. the score was, but it was big. And... Um, Nothing was ever the same after that. And then Team Canada had to put their nose to the grindstone uh, to stay in the series and ultimately prevail. What did you, were you up in the broadcast booth in Vancouver still when Phil Esposito made his speech or where were you? Yeah, we, yeah. I was right there with Foster right at uh, above center ice. And uh, at the beginning, I thought that they were uh, uh, like, we couldn't understand the, the, the booing. We thought they were booing the Soviets. And uh, and jeering them when it first started because the the crowd was quite noisy, and um, it wasn't until you, you you really dawned on you that they weren't uh, they weren't booing the Soviets they were booing Canada, yeah. and I think Phil Esposito like if if I look in hindsight of the series I, I not to, not to downplay the importance of Paul Henderson's goals, yeah. but I sort of think there wasn't any goals if you go back and look in the score sheets I think that Phil Esposito was the heart and soul of that team and I think at times he carried that team on his back Uh, Paul Henderson clearly scored the glory goals um, but uh, Phil Esposito um, you know was the guy that created a lot of them and if you even go back to the final goal um, Esposito was involved and he had scored the goals that put them in the position to uh, win that game six to five so it, uh, but that clearly the team became Team Canada in those last couple of games when it was really an uphill slug to win that tournament, and uh, but they prevailed. And and Ivan Cornway was great too. Well, a lot of players uh, were were great. There's no question. Uh, at the end of the day, um, you know th- that's what a team is. You know, it was interesting uh, going full circle coming back to the '67 team. Um, we had a terrible regular season. It was very disjointed. We had a, a group of very veteran players, uh, Johnny Bauer, Terry Sachuk, Alan Stanley, um, Bobby Bond, these older players. And then we had a group of young players, Mike Walton, Ronnie Ellis, uh, Peter Stimkowski, myself, uh, Jimmy Pappen. And it didn't fit until the end. And then all of a sudden, in about 10 games to go in the season, it fitted together. And as I said to somebody when I, I was on the air a couple of days ago, said that it's not always the best team in the regular season 
that wins the Stanley Cup. It's the team that plays the best in the Stanley Cup that wins. And we were a perfect example of that. Montreal and Chicago were two really good hockey teams, mm-hmm. clearly the best two teams in the regular season. But in the playoffs, um, we were able to prevail against both of them. Well, this has just been a wonderful conversation, Brian. I know you got a big luncheon to go to. That's uh, why we're going to cut things short here. But do you do a lot of appearances and stuff like that still to kind of, you know, represent the, the Leafs and things like that in Toronto? Uh, no, I'm uh, I'm long gone. I'm a full-time grandparent. I've got uh, two 15-year-old uh, teenage boys and a granddaughter of 17 who's a skier. Mm-hmm. And um, I spend most of my time with my grandkids. Well... I, I just had a, this was wonderful for me looking back at, I mean, the Leafs in 67, but in 72, and, and then your time here. Just to, thanks so much for your time. Uh, best of luck to, to everything. Good health, and uh, thanks for coming on. Really Kevin, my it. pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. That's Brian Conacher, former Stanley Cup champion, GM of the Edmonton Oilers in 78, and uh, uh, color analyst for the 72 Summit Series. And how about his dad, Lionel? So the male athlete of the year of the century. In uh, in Canada, nineteen hundred to nineteen fifty, absolutely uh, an amazing uh, individual. When we come back, we'll have a little open time. Before that, how about the ski report? Here's the Duke. This is the Sports fourteen forty ski report. Your ski report for Friday, February 9th, brought to you by Snow Valley Ski Club. Start your skiing journey at snowvalley.ca. The slopes should be busy this weekend with mild temperatures and fresh snow, making for some of the best conditions we've seen so far this season. It's also International Ski Patrol Day on Saturday, so thank a patroller when you get the chance. Or take part in related activities taking place at Louise and several other resorts this weekend and be part of a global patrol day event. Good conditions at Lake Louise with three centimeters overnight and 19 in the last seven days. Elsewhere in Banff, Norquay is having a good week with another five centimeters overnight to go on top of 30 plus that fell in the past week. Sunshine Village, four centimeters in the last day and 23 over the past week. West to Jasper, Marmot Basin looking good as well with seven centimeters in the last 24 hours and 25 in the last five days. Nakiska has five centimeters overnight and their gold chair is closed today for maintenance. 10 centimeters overnight at Castle Mountain. Fernie is issuing a powder alert with 20 centimeters in the last 24 hours. Rebel Soak and Kicking Horse, both with a couple centimeters in the last couple days. At Twatna, north of the city, an Alberta freestyle event will have some select runs closed this weekend, but the rest of the hill and the cross-country trails are in full operation. The Burke Biner, one of Canada's biggest cross-country ski events, is not taking place this weekend as snow conditions just didn't permit it. But on the upside, all those trails of the Cook and Lake Blackfoot system are open for public use this weekend, although coverage is marginal in places. That is your Snow Valley Ski Report. All right, welcome back uh, to the big program. Lots of comments about uh, Brian Conacher. I mean, that's uh, just like Dick Irvin, sharp as a tack, you know, 82 years old now. And again, uh, just the things that he's done on and off the ice is simply amazing. Uh, I'm going to throw one player, Duke, on that Oilers team back in 77, 78, that maybe you still know who he is, what he does. Joe Micheletti. So Joe Micheletti's the color analyst, lead analyst for the New York Rangers. Yeah. So there you go. So Joe, Joe Micheletti, and I, we talked to, I interviewed Joe about that uh, maybe five years ago when he was in town with the Rangers mm-hmm. and just talking about, you know, being playing here and, and playing on, you know, those teams in the WHA and, and you know, here he is still just, you know, lead analyst for for uh, Rangers broadcasts on MSG with uh, 
I guess Sammy Rosen still. I think uh, Kenny sometimes. Kenny sometimes, and, yeah. yeah. They're, I think Sam, well, Sam's got to be getting up there too. <laughs> I mean, but Joe, he still does a fabulous job. And, and um, But even just talk, look, look at Brian. Yeah, I was working in the TV business in Windsor and things like that. So a uh, lot, of, lot of comments uh, coming in regarding uh, the – just how sharp uh, uh, jump jack flash great interview with uh, brian uh thumbs up have him back again um b says uh brian conacher the legendary color man from the 72 summit series uh he's 82 years old if you can believe it's still incredibly sharp doesn't sound like he's a day over 50 uh man stories and talking about everything and wha days and and things like that. Uh, top of the hour, just to let everyone know what we're doing here, uh, Emerson Edom, uh, he's with the Anaheim Ducks as an analyst. He's also got a lot of other things on the go, uh, like just kind of clinics and things like that. Duke, he's sort of got some, you know, he's based in California now, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's where he's from originally, Long yeah, Beach Kids. So. But to do all that, so it's, what, is it called the Beach Kids kind of thing? I think that's the name. Yeah. I don't have it in front of me, but yeah, doing yeah. some, uh, of course, wanting to uh, to get him on. Uh, um, it'll, it'll be great to chat with him. Uh, part of like those really successful Ducks teams in the mid-2000s, uh, some playoff runs. Former teammate of Corey Perry's, who makes his uh, return to Anaheim tonight yes. uh, and getting uh, probably a look up on the second line uh, as well. So, I mean, hey, if you're if you're a gambling person and looking at tonight's game, <laughs> we talked about uh, Leon absolutely pounding the Ducks. Of course, if Corey Perry's riding shotgun, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he got his first point uh, in an Oilers uniform tonight. That's a very good point. And uh, Emerson Edom played in Medicine Hat for three years and so lit it. Up. He had, I mean, he was a well, he was a first round draft pick. Yeah, kind of fell a little bit in the first, right to the tail end of the mm-hmm. first round, and uh, I think the Ducks were happy to snap him up there as a, a local kid um, from from SoCal. Played two two World Junior Championships for USA. the states, obviously, but he had sixty one goals his uh, last year in Medicine Hat. Sixty one goals in sixty five games, one hundred and seven points. Is that good? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> well, the year he was drafted, um, you know, he. I'll t- I mean, the year he was drafted as technically a rookie yeah. in the WHA, WHL, he had 37 goals. That's pretty impressive you know, as, a, as a 17-year-old. I, I wonder, do you know why he fell kind of a little bit? Uh, well, I think he was maybe looked at as a bit of a one-dimensional player, like yeah. obviously offense, which is funny because then in the NHL, you talk about uh, a, not quite as similar, and obviously longevity wasn't there, but Andrew yeah. Cogliano came in as a high-profile offensive player. Edom kind of fell into a PK role at the Ducks and could play up and down the lineup. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the the because the dra- that was the 2010 draft, right? It was the 2010 draft, yes. Yeah, which, uh, which uh, once again, looking back to, to my team, the Ducks, they got very fortunate twice over there, getting Edom at the end of the first round. And uh, Cam Fowler, some people thought could be as high as the third overall pick behind Holland Sagan, fell to them at 12th. And, uh, they, I mean, he's now played over 900 games for mm-hmm. that team. I was at that draft. Were you really? Yeah. Because it was in L.A., right? Yeah, in L.A., yeah. That was the... Well, the Oilers had the number one pick. <laughs> uh, First of a couple in a row, if I recall yeah, correctly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. We got to, uh, my cameraman Chuck and I got to L.A. just in time to get to, they had a, it was way different back then, to a little soiree they had at some big time hotel in in L.A. And they had, it was very informal, mm-hmm. not like it is now. Uh, they had obviously Taylor Hall and Tyler Sagan were the top two guys, and those two guys just sat around and they had you know they had water and whatever refreshments they had, and guys would just go from it. All, it was almost like a table to table to uh, speed dating, kind of you know like when they have uh, I wouldn't say speed dating, but 
you know what I mean? Like you could just kind of peruse around. You wanted as much as you, as mm-hmm. and go to talk to other picks, but obviously they they were the top two guys. Yeah, you know, and the Oilers with the number one pick. But yeah, as you mentioned, there were a lot. Of, that was a pretty good draft when you think about yeah. it. You know, yeah, there are not too many not too many duds in the draft. And Emerson Edom, yeah, he went to 29th, right before uh, before him. Charlie Coyle went. Yeah, just looking at the draft right now, <laughs> and right after him, Brock Nelson went. Brock Nelson still still kicking still and kicking. setting like career highs now in his uh, in his uh, 30, 30 year old. Now, you know it's season. all coming back to me because we stuck around. I stuck around for Mark Pesic got drafted hmm. by twenty uh, second, uh, sorry twenty third overall by Buffalo. Mm-hmm. So uh, talked to his dad in the stands and and his mom was there and that was the reason. Yeah, so yeah, see if Pesic's going to go. Where is he going to go? And we kind of hung around. Da 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 da. And now I'm just kind of looking now who is the. Uh, 11th overall pick, Jack, Jack Campbell. Campbell. So, man, down in L.A. We had some fun down there, Duke, too. Oh, oh yeah, I can imagine, Kev. I th- I don't know where uh, – is there any locations you've been where you have uh, haven't had a good time? No. <laughs> and uh, the other thing, too, our, all our buddies used to say, we can have just as much fun picking dandelions as we could be playing Pebble Beach. Yeah. You know, it's all about who you're with and – not necessarily where you are. Yeah. It's about oh. who you're with and the fellowship that you can have. Could not agree more, Kevin. Mm-hmm. So we did the ski report. Man, I was on top of that. I, you, you I, I wrote it down because I've been forgetting it. I, I was kind of forgetting a little bit about it. Well, I, I think it's because uh, obviously we like to have uh, Donovan, the intern, get yeah. some reps in on that. But uh, we gave him a bit of the morning off today since he's going to be filling in on the lowdown again wow. and sticking around a little bit later, working on all of his social media stuff. So I gave him the first couple hours of the morning off. Uh, but when he records it, he uh, often goes to a separate studio. Yes. So while we're doing uh, in the middle of a break, he can get it recorded and edited and then uh, fired across. When that when it's not being recorded in between breaks, like during the commercials, it kind of slips your mind a little bit, I think, mm-hmm. which is perfectly perfectly acceptable and understandable. Donnie P, did you get some extra winks in then this morning or what did you? Oh, I got more than uh, some really? extra winks in. Wow. I, got a, I got a full extra what? Two and a half hours. So and you, that was that and was. You a could sleep thing. like you've been getting. You've been used to getting up early. So, but no problem having that little extra sleep in. Uh, no, no, it wasn't a real big problem this morning. No, it was. Uh, it was very much appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tons of texts coming in too about when we had our final question for in or out about dip spreads, best food for Super Bowl snacks. Super Bowl. Uh, what did you think of the one? Uh, was that tomato? Not tomato soup. Who sent the the recipe in? Oh. Tomato soup, homemade baked beans cooked for about 15 hours. Yeah. That's the one, because you asked him about it. Because yeah, he, he just sent it, mini wieners and baked beans in the yeah. crock pot, MVP. And I was like, well, what's quite curious on? about like, do you just eat that like on the plate? Do you dip and stuff in it? or Standalone dish, he says. It's dynamite, JJ. Well, like when he said all of a sudden, yeah, navy beans uh, slow cooked. For I'm not a mini, 15. I'm chopping up some wieners. I'm not getting the mini getting the, wieners. Getting the minis? I'm just chopping up some wieners. Yeah, one of my other favorites, I didn't include this when we were talking about it earlier, but uh, uh, it's been a staple every year since we've been having this little shindig up in Fort Saskatchewan, the, the bacon-wrapped uh, stuffed jalapenos. Oh, yeah. Like, buddy. And talking about that, uh, the, the Canadian Brew House does a great version of that for on their appetizer menu as well. I'm a sucker for it every time. Oh, boy. Uh, top of the hour, we will have Emerson Edom, Anaheim Ducks analyst, and then we'll also have uh, Paul Sir join us from the basketball show, which uh, is getting on. It's tipping off. How's that sound? Tomorrow, 10 o'clock till 12, uh, right here on Sports 1440. So looking forward to really working with Paul. There isn't anyone 
in Alberta, wherever, that knows basketball in this province at every level, if, from the NBA to the NCAA to Canadian University to high school to whatever. Paul Sir, just a wealth of knowledge, and we're lucky to have him here on Sports 1440. Uh, before that, time now for a Sports 1440 update brought to you by the Snow Valley Ski Club. All runs and lifts are open, ready for family fun seven days a week. Visit snowvalley.ca for details. Here's the lovely and talented Donovan, the intern. 